Tonight on Rhode Island PBS Weekly. There's the Arabic script. This coin is about the size of a dime. It's 12 grains in silver, thin as a razor. It was covered with dirt. The farmer who lived back in 1696 at Sweetberry Farm went into town and he did some business and he came back with one of those coins in his pocket. It was dropped to the ground and that's where it sat for over three centuries until I found it. It's blue collar hockey, it's all it's grit. You gotta play your heart out every time you step on the ice. A tradition that dates back nearly a hundred years. Mount St. Charles is uh, really founded as um, uh, to educate the, uh, the sons of the mill workers in Woonsocket, and uh, they were French-Canadian. You know, and that meant hockey, probably. Yeah, there's, uh, there's a lot of them that could, could skate. A local guitar maker is reimagining how instruments are made. It's not like um, a hippie solution, you know, it's actually like tangible solutions with actual everyday application now. Good evening, welcome to Rhode Island PBS Weekly. I'm Pamela Watts. And I'm Michelle San Miguel. We begin tonight with a story about lost treasures, a king's ransom stolen, murder and mayhem on the high seas. It may sound like Treasure Island, but it is a true tale of Rhode Island. It was the unsolved crime of the century, the 17th century that is, and now a silver coin found by a Warwick man has cracked the 300-year-old cold case of a pirate and his cutthroat crew. And the clue, found in a Rhode Island field, weighs no more than an M&M candy. I squeezed it like a big bottle of seltzer onto the coin, kind of like squirted it. And the dirt came off, and there's this bold, crisp, clear Arabic script on the coin. And I just said, oh my God, I, I just don't believe it. And you almost feel foolish saying it. I have a, I have a pirate's coin. Jim Bailey's tiny piece of pirate plunder provides a big piece of a puzzle confounding historians for 300 years. Who pulled off the heist of the century and did they hide out in the American colonies? A criminal mystery buried underground. Bailey's pirate hunting tool is a metal detector, but he claims he's not like the beachcombers you often see along the Rhode Island shoreline. So you're not really a treasure hunter? To say you're a treasure hunter suggests that you're also, you know, investigating crop circles, looking for Bigfoot, stuff like that. I'm looking for, for history. Looking for history began when Bailey worked a couple of summers in college, recording artifacts raised from the Widda off Cape Cod, an authenticated pirate shipwreck. We brought up, uh, I think it was eight or nine cannons. Uh, 1,300 silver Spanish coins, bits of gold dust, navigational dividers, just a ship's anchor. Once you get bit, there's no cure for it. Getting bit by the archaeology bug keeps Bailey busy when not working as a security analyst at the state prison. He says the criminals there are no match for the marauding pirates who came through Rogue's Island, as the Ocean State was known back then. They were the original gangsters. They're like the mob, basically. I, I like to say that this period of piracy 
It was um, Goodfellas meets Pirates of the Caribbean. Rhode Island was notorious as a safe haven for pirates. Captain Kidd came through Jamestown, and swashbuckling Thomas II was a Newport native. So Bailey began researching, studying old maps and aerial photos to find any trace of pirates. He followed a hunch there'd be evidence at the remains of a 17th century farmstead. So, Jim, it was out here on the farm that you made this big discovery? Mm-hmm. Uh, th 2014, May of 2014. This is Sweetberry Farm in Middletown, once part of Newport. Bailey's instincts were right. The orchard began yielding a treasure trove of colonial relics. At Middletown's Historical Society, he showed us his first finds, a silver shoe buckle and cannonballs. I found this coin. This is a, uh, a shilling minted by the Massachusetts Bay Colony. It's dated 1652. Bailey also discovered spoons, thimbles, jingle bells. Then after years of detective work, he hit pay dirt at the farm. I got a signal, I use a shovel, and I cut a small plug. And I pop it out and I flip it over. And as I bend down to look, I can see the edge of a silver coin. There's the Arabic script. This coin is about the size of a dime. It's 12 grains in silver, as thin as a razor. It was covered with dirt. And you have to be careful with these coins. So you don't want to take it and rub it on your pants leg because you could damage the coin. Bailey finally had the inscription translated. It was minted in Yemen in 1693. Bailey connected the dots. Primary sources revealed the coin could be traced to a dramatic pirate attack that occurred in 1695. The Royal Indian vessel Ganjasawi was loaded with pilgrims returning from Mecca. It had a cargo of tens of millions, and it headed right into a trap. They sold off all these cotton goods in the uh, port city of Mocha, which is in Yemen today. And when they sailed out of the, the Red Sea, there were six pirate ships waiting for them, and four of them were from Rhode Island. They wound up pursuing the fleet all the way across the Arabian Sea and off the west coast of India. The ringleader of that bloody raid was English pirate Captain Henry Every. First-hand accounts of the treachery are terrifying. It was just nothing but murder and mayhem for the next two days on board the, the Ganjasawi. When you think about the fact that they're down there and they, there's no nowhere to go, and you have these pirates, these, these hardened men brandishing boarding axes and loaded muskets, loaded pistols. What can you do? And, uh, you know, it was, it was horrendous. Bailey says it's the only known incident in the history of piracy where these Arabic coins were stolen. He estimates their worth in today's money at some $90 million. The King of England put a huge bounty on Every's head because the murderous robbery jeopardized lucrative British trade relations with India. So why are these coins winding up in Rhode Island? Well, when Henry Every captures the Ganjasawi, he's, he's aware of the enormity of his crime. And, he, you know, half the job is robbing the ship. The bigger part of the job is getting away with it. Bailey found accounts reporting that Every's crew included four Rhode Islanders, and their ship, the Seaflower, eventually docked in Newport. They posed as slave traders, it raised little suspicion in a city infamous for such activity. When they come back from the, from the Arabian Sea, rich with plunder, the first place they're going to go 
is their taverns. To toast their success. To toast their success and damnation to King William. King William's proclamation said the culprits would be identified by the Arabic coins in their possession. Every had to get rid of the evidence that made him a wanted man. When they went to Newport, all the coins went into the crucible for the silversmith. It all got melted down and eventually it wound up on people's dinner tables as cups, saucers, knives. And one of these coins, before it was melted down, was being passed in a tavern. The farmer who lived back in 1696 at Sweetberry Farm went into town and he did some business and he came back with one of those coins in his pocket. It was dropped to the ground and that's where it sat for over three centuries until I found it. Since Bailey has found his clue, the news has led to the discovery of similar coins in the original American colonies. There's been 23 specimens found in New England, two in the Carolinas and one in Maryland. Here's the interesting thing. They're all silver. They're all Arabic. Henry Every captures the, the, the Ganja Sawi in 1695. Not a single coin, not a single coin dates after 1695. So what are you looking for now? Where are you going from here? Everybody wants to know <laughs> what happened to Henry Every. I'm pretty sure we're going to have some solid and solid evidence for what became of, of Henry Every, which is very, very exciting. Up next, it's said that great hockey players have fire in their hearts and ice in their veins. Here in Rhode Island, you'll find some of the best players in Woonsocket at Mount St. Charles Academy. Led for decades by legendary coach Bill Belisle, the Mounties, as they're known, may be the winningest sports franchise in the Ocean State, part of a tradition that dates back nearly a century. Belisle died a year ago this month. But as contributing reporter David Wright discovered, this dynasty on ice is building on Belial's legacy with a program that now draws players from around the world. One, two, three, Friday night at Woonsocket's Mount St. Charles Academy. The Mounties take the ice against their arch rivals, Bishop Hendrickson. Parents and grandparents dreaming of heroes, their sons gliding to glory, a winter tradition as solid as ice. I'm from Cumberland, Rhode Island, and uh, I remember as a kid I used to just come to these games. I've wanted to go to Mount my whole life and just play for this team, and now it's finally here, and I'm just soaking in every second of it. This is my NHL, so I'm just going to give everything I got right now. It's blue-collar hockey. It's all it's grit. you got to play your heart out every time you step on the ice. A tradition that dates back nearly 100 years. Mount St. Charles is uh, really founded as um, uh, to, to educate the, uh, the sons of the mill workers in Woonsocket. And uh, they were French-Canadian uh, and uh, settled here and, and in the mills. And, you know, and that meant hockey, probably. Yeah, there's, uh, there's a lot of them that could, could skate. The school president, Alan Tenrero, says the facilities were fairly rustic back then. The flying Frenchmen, as they were known, played on a homemade rink. The brothers of the Sacred Heart uh, would 
hose down the, the ice and they'd shovel the ice and they use sometimes the lights of cars to, to light up the, uh, uh, the arena. Today, Mount is one of just a handful of Rhode Island schools with its own rink, built in an old airplane hangar 50 years ago, named after the Quebecois monk who formed the academy's first boys team, Brother Adelard Baudet. He lived well past 100, long enough to see Mount St. Charles become a hockey powerhouse under the legendary coach he recruited, Bill Belisle. He played. He went to the school. He played in the outdoor rink. He learned uh, what they call the flying Frenchman way. That's David Belisle, Bill's son and longtime assistant coach. I can describe it this way. I was the right-hand man for my father. I coached with my dad as assistant coach for 30, 38 years and played for him for three. Bill Belisle was a graduate of Mount St. Charles and a hockey standout. A former Army drill sergeant, he was head coach here for 44 years. And when my dad came to practice, and you can ask any player or even any assistant coach, he was the hottest working guy on that ice. Didn't stop. Not only did he work on the ice, but he worked off the ice, you know, at night prepping for his practice. The documentary Ice Kings chronicles the Belisle years, which saw the Mounties winning every single national championship in the 1980s and sent more than 20 players to the NHL, among them Brian Burrard and Brian Lawton, both first-round draft picks, and Brian Boucher, former goaltender for the Philadelphia Flyers. Mount St. Charles sharpened their skills and taught them it's not just about individual glory. No matter how good the other opponent is, even if they're better than you, you can win that way. And you can outskate, outhit, out you know, outpass, outshoot someone. It is a tough game and it's But it's a team sport. But it's a team sport. So you have support. It's not only about you. So you know what my father would always say, if you know if the guy in the middle doesn't pass to the left, but if the guy in the left doesn't dig it out and give it to the guy in the right, and if he doesn't put it in the net, you know, what are we? But then again, if the goalie's not stopping the puck, what's the reason why he's not stopping it? It was because the forwards or the defense didn't help him. So it's a team game. Mount St. Charles is justifiably proud of its hockey program, truly one of the best in the country. They had 26 straight state championships during the Bill Belisle years. And this group on the ice right now, the U18 squad, they're the reigning national champions. The only tragedy is Coach Belisle didn't live to see it. Coach Belisle passed the torch just a few years after his induction to the U.S. Hockey Hall of Fame. I'd like to thank my family for their support and especially God for giving me a second chance in life. Now, Dave, take over before I start crying. Today, as we're taping this, is the day my dad passed one year ago today. Wow. So I'm sitting in your chair, Dad, coach. His office still crammed with a lifetime of hockey memories. That's Bill Belisle. You miss him? I miss him. I bet. Yes, I do. But he's here. Yeah. He is forever. Yeah, he's here. Yeah. In the past few years, Mount St. Charles has built on Bill Belisle's legacy, adding a dormitory. So here's a, one of the triples. 
Nice. For the students. It's got that nice lived-in look. Got right that now. hockey smell to it. <laughs> a little locker room, a little flavor of the locker room. Teenage boys living together. These days, the Mounties aren't just local kids from Woonsocket. We have 72 uh, boarding students here. And where are they from? Uh, they're from all over uh, the, the United States, uh, and we also have a number of international students, whether it's Canada or Sweden or Russia or Czechoslovakia. Already, the Hockey Academy has seen huge success. You know, the past few years, we've had uh, close to seven NHL drafts that have come out of that. So many Division I college commitments, as well as some Division II and even Division III commitments. But that success has come at a cost to the interscholastic squad. The varsity team no longer includes the best players in the school. The night we watched, they lost to arch rival Hendricken 6 0. I gather some of the old guard misses how it was. Uh, they do, you know, it's, it's uh, I think our interscholastic uh, program, uh, I don't think we'll see 26 state championships in a row again. You know, that's, that's okay, because uh, that, that's a, a still a, a great level, a great thing to be able to put that Mount M and play for your high school team is still something to be so proud of. For his part, varsity coach Matt Merton admits it's a different era. We have a young team, but they're very talented and they'll you know, they'll learn and, and grow and get better as the year progresses. And, you know, the goal is always to peak at the end of the year. That's not deep enough, boys. But he says the values of Mount St. Charles hockey haven't changed at all. We spend a lot of time really teaching the tenants that, that Coach Bill uh, imparted to us. And what is the secret sauce? The secret sauce is faith, family, and hard work. We don't necessarily do this for the money. We do it to give back to the individual that, that made us who we are. You know, Bill created a lot of men. You know, you came in as a boy and you left as a man based on the lessons of, of Coach Bill. And, and that's more than just hockey. And that's much more than just hockey. You think it's hockey at the time, and then when you get older, you realize it's so much more. Now a question, what do honeycombs, mushrooms, and corn husks all have in common? They're all ingredients that a local guitar maker uses in her efforts to reduce her impact on the environment. This is part of our continuing Green Seeker series. I was very quickly disenchanted just by the mass production. Things that were inventory on the shelves often could end up in the trash. Rochelle Rosencrantz had established herself as a furniture maker and an industrial designer, both in her native France and in Rhode Island. But about a decade ago, she decided it was time to explore something new. I missed working with my hands. That was the bottom line. And I started to play music again. So that really like propelled everything. Over the years, Rosencrantz says her own creative process faced some inner struggles. There you go. She felt torn between being a musician and a visual artist and dreamed of combining her two passions. If it wiggles a bit, yeah. Was there a moment when you realized, gosh, I can make a living making guitars? Yes, other people do it, so why not me? 
and I've been thinking about it for too long to not do it. And no, because it was scary. It's like, it's a drastic change. It was worth the risk, though. Rosencrantz says the environmental impact of making guitars has been well known for decades. Much of the timber comes from old, rare trees that produce good acoustics, like ebony, mahogany, and rosewood. Excessive harvesting of Brazilian rosewood has contributed to its extreme endangerment. It's one of the reasons why she's selective about where she buys her wood. My rosewood is from India. My maple is from the States. My, I have some cedar from Spain. I have some cedar uh, from California. Rosencrantz used her free time during the pandemic to experiment with making instruments from other materials. Take, for instance, the body of her guitars. They're not carved, they're grown. Rosencrantz packs her molds with mushroom spores, as well as organic waste like corn husk. That whole bag might do the trick. Actually growing a body in mushroom is cheaper than cutting a tree across the world. That's just the bottom line. It looks like a granola bar, but there's kind of a brutalist, uh, you know, aesthetic to it. <laughs> the growth of the mushrooms fills any remaining spaces and binds it all together in the shape of the mold. Then, once it's dry, Rosencrantz is left with a solid board. Yeah. Her friend, Mark Miloff, stopped by her studio to try it out. Pretty close. Because it's mushroom, I think of really delicious uh, porcini soup or something like that. Uh, but, um, uh, yeah, there's definitely a distinctive sound. It, it is absolutely not a wooden guitar, a wooden resonance. Uh, there's something that is, uh, I find, very pleasing. She's not the first to see the potential in mycelium, the thread-like branches that grow beneath mushrooms. See, this guitar in encourages that kind of music. It doesn't encourage... Oh, maybe it does. I just love the sound. Many industries are taking note. For instance, these Adidas sneakers were made from it, and IKEA has been using it as an alternative to styrofoam. It's not like um, a hippie solution, you know. It's actually like tangible solutions with actual everyday application now. But uh, I saw like, well, nobody's looking at the acoustics of those. What if maybe there's some solution there too. So I gave the bees a soundboard to build from. Rosencrantz not only proved mushroom spores and organic waste can be used to make guitars, but she also built one from honeycombs. The humming of the bees is within the range of the guitar. It's 309 hertz. That's close to like the A string on a guitar. So I'm like, okay, so that should diffuse a guitar. She knew honeycomb was resonant. She designed a bracing structure and watched as the bees built their comb along it. But then she found herself with a honey-filled guitar that couldn't resonate. So I had to leave it a whole winter but for them to eat because it's cruel to like take, you know, take all their food. They work hard and now they're going to starve. No, I can't do that. So, well, they had food for the winter and they returned in, in uh, early April. I had a... Uh, 
a perfectly cleaned up guitar that was full, like empty of honey that could resonate. Rosencrantz admits strumming a guitar made from honeycomb isn't practical, but she says it's helped her better understand how biomaterials can diffuse sound. I'm learning so much. As I'm working on one, I start to have like five other ideas. There's so much curiosity that the learning curve is exponential. Finally tonight, a sneak peek. Next week, we take another look at Judge Frank Caprio and the art of second chances. I haven't met the person yet who hasn't made a mistake and needed a second chance. It's all part of life. I mean, it's 100 bucks. I'm going to dismiss it. I appreciate it. And I wanted to say, never have I met a judge like you. I'm not going to comment on that except to say this. I don't do anything different than what I was taught to do by my parents. My name is Judge Frank Caprio, and this is my take on second chances. I believe in second chances because it, it's, it's part of life. It gives a person the opportunity to not only recognize their mistakes, but to do something positive about it. In our daily life, I would suspect that most of us make at least five mistakes a day. Simple stuff. Maybe we take the wrong turn on the street. That's a mistake. Maybe we say something we really didn't mean to say. Oh, simple stuff. We're talking about major mistakes. People, some people commit crimes. That's a whole different. That's a whole different situation. I was going to the blood work for my boy. He's handicapped. Huh. You were taking your son to the doctor's office. Yeah, I take him for blood work mm -hmm. every two weeks because he's got cancer. You are a good man. That's our broadcast this evening. Thank you for joining us. I'm Michelle San Miguel. And I'm Pamela Watts. We'll be back next week with another edition of Rhode Island PBS Weekly. Until then, follow us on Twitter and Facebook and visit us online to see all of our stories and past episodes at ripbs.org weekly. Or listen to our podcast on your favorite streaming platform. Thank you and good night.